Remember the Abbott and Costello routine? Who's on first? When it comes to our families and our patients, I hope your answer is not the name of the third baseman. To learn why, stay with ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ken Brummel-Smith. Dr. Brummel-Smith is the Charlotte Edwards McGuire Professor and Chair, Department of Geriatrics, Florida State University College of Medicine. He is a past president and the immediate past chairman of the board of the American Geriatric Society. Alzheimer's disease is devastating. Today we are discussing how to remember and care for the person inside. Welcome, Dr. Brummel-Smith. It's great having you with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Dr. Bernard Isaacs spoke about four attitudes displayed to patients with Alzheimer's. Talks about antipathy, apathy, sympathy, and empathy. Antipathy is disgust, apathy is distance, but sympathy is care, and empathy is action. How do you respond to Dr. Isaacs? Well, that's a great quote. I hadn't actually heard that quote by him, but he's obviously one of the great forefathers of geriatrics. I think, you know, the emphasis on sympathy and empathy is a really important point. I think a problem with empathy for all of us is it's very hard to work with a person with Alzheimer's and not feel some fear about it for ourselves. It is a condition that's extremely common and becoming more common as more people are getting older, and I think there's a little bit of fear in every one of us that it could happen to us. Where do we start, and how do you approach your Alzheimer's patients so that you preserve their dignity? I think a really important thing to do is to always err on the side of hoping they will understand. I think as soon as we start immediately considering them as incapable of understanding, then we start to treat them with less than a full view of their personhood. And that starts a vicious spiral where they're treated like a child, they have an emotional reaction to that, then we misperceive that emotional reaction as a component of the Alzheimer's disease, and then we treat that emotional reaction, and the person loses their ability to function at the, albeit lower level than they used to function, but still a higher level than they're capable of. So we're actually creating their handicaps, their disabilities? Exactly. Yeah, this was something that was really pushed in a wonderful book by Tom Kitwood called Dementia Reconsidered, where he really talked about the importance of the way we interact with patients as having an effect on the way that they perform. Could you go into some more details on that? An example would be, let's say a person has some problems with their memory, so they ask the same question over and over. And all of these responses are not, you know, they're not coming out of meanness. They're usually coming out of a lack of understanding. But the frustrated daughter, for instance, being asked the same question, finally blurts out, Dad, I've told you a hundred times, Mom is dead now. Well, he doesn't remember that. And so the message he gets is, one, I've told you something 100 times. Well, no, you haven't. I haven't ever heard you say this because he doesn't remember. So I must be crazy or she must be crazy. And you can see how crazy making that situation would be because memory is how we know everything has occurred. And if we don't have it, then you can't expect the person with Alzheimer's to remember something. And yet they can make that interpretation that you told me I said that, so I must be crazy. That part of the cortex is still functioning. I mean, that's something I probably had never really given a lot of thought to. 
it's not so much a cortical decision as it is an emotional decision, which really is more limbic. And the emotional reactions of people with Alzheimer's persist for a long time. They still can feel fear. They still can feel happiness. They still can feel love, even though they might not be able to think through something cognitively. And so it may not be so much the thought of being crazy as it is the feeling of being in a crazy situation and feeling overwhelmed and scared. So it's really the limbic system. It's the emotion that remains inside. How would the person with Alzheimer's express that back so that maybe we as a caretaker or a physician could realize what they're experiencing so that we could respond better to them? Well, the secret is to actually key in on the emotion behind that kind of a question. The recurrent asking for where is my wife probably has something to do with his fear about being alone or needing help and not knowing where he's going to get it. So if we can, instead of focusing in on the fact that is wrong that he's expressing and get at the underlying fear that's driving that kind of question, then we're going to actually come to the right solution. Does the way we respond to Alzheimer's patients being as caretakers, physicians, is there any information on how that relates to the progression of the disease? There's so much variation in progression. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, there are interesting autopsy findings of people who have very mild Alzheimer's and severe numbers of tangles and plaques, and other people with relatively small numbers of tangles and plaques but show severe Alzheimer's. So there isn't a direct pathologic correlation. And so it makes one wonder how much of this is related to the interactions in the environment around him. I think a great example, for instance, is the work that Phil Sloan has done at University of North Carolina on bathing. You know, bathing is such a simple thing, and yet the idea of being bathed by someone else, especially strangers, is a pretty scary thing. And they've worked out a whole system called Bathing Without a Battle, where they really focus in on the whole emotional aspect of bathing, of being taken care of, of having a comfortable environment, those sorts of things to cut down on the emotional reactions that occur when trying to bathe someone with Alzheimer's. I'd like to come back to this issue in just a moment and pause to welcome those who are just joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ken Brummel-Smith, Chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Florida State University School of Medicine, and we're discussing maintaining the personhood in patients with dementia. That's a fascinating concept that they came up with. Are there other areas in terms of the interaction that really have been shown to give benefit to slow progression or just maintain the dignity of the individual? There have been a number of studies that have looked at changing the dementia care environment so that caregivers can be trained to use this kind of approach. In Europe, it's called Snozellen, and here I think it's probably called more person-oriented care, but the idea that caregivers use things, for instance, like reminiscence in nursing home environments, they might have pictures and a description of the person in the earlier time in their life so that they can be treated as a person and not just as the Alzheimer's case in 305. There's been work on groups where people with Alzheimer's can actually talk to one another about their experience of having Alzheimer's, It's usually more for the early to moderate stages. So there's actually a lot of work going into the non-pharmacologic methods for managing the stresses and behavioral problems of Alzheimer's. You mentioned Dr. Tom Kitwood. He 
talks in his book about malignant social psychology. What's meant by that? Well, what he's referring to is the way that we inadvertently treat people that causes them to have a bad reaction. So, for instance, we might deceive them. I know I had a case where a family had decided that and their father had to go to a nursing home, but he had always said he didn't want to go. And so they said, we're going to go for a drive. And you know he was expecting a drive in the country, and really where he was being taken was to the nursing home. So they deceived him in order to get him there, and he naturally had a terrible reaction when he suddenly showed up at this nursing home. But more simple things are like taking away a person's ability to do something before they've lost the ability to do it. There's often a problem in families where they're worried about the safety of the older person, but from an older person's perspective, they're more concerned about their independence. And we have to strike a balance between those two. If you were giving advice to a group of residents who were beginning to start their careers and taking care of elderly patients, what kind of advice would you give them as a good foundation in terms of maintaining dignity and maintaining the personhood? I think one thing would be in the initial encounter to spend some time talking with the person about their background Usually the remote memories in Alzheimer's are lost last, and the person can often tell you their war stories or the time during the Depression when they had to live on a dollar a day or these other sorts of stories. And that will give you a better impression of the person as a human being. If you start right off on a typical medical history, they're not going to remember the facts, and then they're going to get frustrated trying to remember them. I always assess it because that's the way you tell how much memory problems they have, but I don't try and get too clear on the facts. I go through family members and the medical chart to get the facts. My goal with a person with Alzheimer's is to build a relationship. In your talk on this subject, you talk about an autonomy focus. Could you go into some depth about that? Well, by that I mean, you know, our whole ethical system is based on this concept of autonomy, that the person has a right to make their own decisions. And that's good when someone has intact cognition, but it really negates the reality of medical decision-making as it actually happens, which is usually within the context of the family. So in reality, most people actually discuss with their families all their big medical decisions, and we ought to see that as a routine part of the medical decision-making with an older person with Alzheimer's as well. A lot of times, the family will be able to tell you how the person would have made decisions, and we won't just be acting on what we think is best for them, but rather what's most likely to have been the way they would have made a decision, but they might not be able to tell us right now. Is there a legal snafu in there that the caretaker is sort of interpreting for you what the person would have wanted and... Maybe there's something self-serving there? I don't know. Well, you're right. You have to be careful about it. There's some evidence that in many cases, family members don't have any better chance of knowing what they would have wanted than you knowing what they would have wanted. On the other side, there's a long legal precedence for the use of surrogates in medical decision-making, and the best surrogate is someone who knows the person best. So, I don't think we should just automatically accept a family member's decision. What we should do is say, tell me why you think they would have decided that. And if they can give you a long story, I had a patient once where he was not demented, but he had aphasia from a stroke. And my question was whether he should stay in rehab longer or not. And 
he couldn't tell me. So I talked to the family, and the first thing the older son said was, Dad hates medical doctors. He hates hospitals. I'm sure he wants to get out of here as soon as possible. <laughs> so I believed him. <laughs> it's always, you know, if you have a family that's willing to take somebody home and take care of them, I mean, what could be any better than that? Exactly. And that was the big point was that their family really wanted to take him home and really wanted to care for him at home. I'd like to end on that positive note and thank Dr. Brummel Smith, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing nurturing the personhood in our parents, friends, and patients afflicted with Alzheimer's disease. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our on-demand and podcast features, which gives you access to our entire program library. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.